everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. To start things off, I want to do a quick exercise. I'd like for you to envision a cell phone. Now, imagine one that features a high-resolution camera, a big color touchscreen display, and even an app store where you can go online and personalize your device with access to games, news sources, music, and more. And now that you have this image firmly in your mind, please give this device with all of its cool functionality a name. In this very moment, you're very likely saying to yourself, hey, that device you just described already has a name and it's called the iPhone. And of course, all over the world, we all know this, such has been the enormous success of the product since it was first launched in 2007. But what if I told you Apple wasn't the real innovator here? That three years before the iPhone came out, engineers at Nokia created a device with these exact features, but the company's management rejected it and shut down the team that developed it. So how is it that leaders at Nokia could have dismissed these extraordinary innovations when the ones at Apple employed them to create what's arguably the most successful product of the 21st century? Well, that's one of the big questions we're going to answer in today's podcast. And the truth is, history books are filled with the names of companies that resisted new innovations and inevitably failed once their competitors seized them. So how do we all avoid a similar fate? Or better yet, how do we create workplaces where new ideas and innovations flourish? My guest today is the expert we need in order to answer this, and his new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Bill Gates picked it as one of the must-reads for 2019, and authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and Adam Grant named it one of the two most groundbreaking nonfiction reads of the season. Safi Bacall graduated summa cum laude in physics at Harvard and earned a PhD at Stanford. He co-founded a biotechnology company specializing in developing new cancer drugs and was named Ernst & Young's New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. In the years since, he's devoted himself to identifying all the ways leaders successfully nurture and champion new ideas, even how they prevent others from killing them. And we're about to dig into the book that teaches managers how to embrace change and foster the crazy ideas that go on to change the world. It is an honor to have you on the podcast, and welcome to you, sir, Safi Bacall. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be on your show. Well, thank you. I'm honored that you're on the show, and having read your book, I want to say that it's filled with so much research that I found really, truly remarkable. Like, I'm speaking outside of myself as I'm reading this, and I kept asking myself, like, how did he learn all of this? So I think this is really a great place to start. So tell us why you wrote this book, who you wrote it for, and really, you know, kind of take us through the methodology that you use for uncovering so much meaningful history to support your thesis. Well, let's see. I mean, I how did I get to it? I started my career or science or after school stuff in academic science and theoretical physics. And then I detoured after a bunch of years into consulting at McKinsey. And then eventually knew that I wanted to get started in doing something bigger, something that could be outside myself or you know, doing research or building up a resume, but something that could make a difference for others that could help people. And so I ended up starting a biotech company for treating cancer, for developing new drugs for treating cancer. And not long after I started that company, my father got diagnosed with a rare type of leukemia. And I figured, well, now I'm in the field, I have access to all the latest drugs and tools, I can do something about this. But Unfortunately, nothing I could do made any difference, and he died not long after. I'm sorry. And over the years, as my company grew and we went public, everywhere I looked inside big companies, tiny startups, there were promising ideas that could have helped my father, and they were just trapped inside the basements of those organizations. Not because any of the people were bad people, but because of something strange it happened when people came together into a group which sort of boils down to this kind of this mystery this puzzles why do good teams with the best intentions kill great ideas 
And I kept just seeing this all the time around me in the business world, even in the personal world, in the private world. And then a few years later, I got a call to work with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors and the future of national research. And we were told, well, your job is to write something called the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. And I, you know, not knowing much history or science or, or science policy, I had no idea who Vannevar Bush was or what his report was. So I did the first thing probably anybody would have tried to do, which is figure out how could I get out of this assignment. <laughs> but then I learned that he was uh, head of engineering at MIT just before the outbreak of World War II in the late 1930s. And he understood that the U.S. was in a very difficult situation because of exactly the same problem, that the military had fallen far behind a tiny startup in Europe called Nazi Germany in the science and technology that would be critical for winning the war. And it wasn't because generals didn't want to win the war. It wasn't because they didn't want the latest tools and technology, but it was something strange that happened when people come together in a group. And he figured out a very interesting solution to that problem that I wasn't aware of and that had a lot of translation into the business world. But even more interestingly, it connected with some things I'd been talking about and thinking about in science, in basic science, in the study of what are called phase transitions of why systems suddenly change. And what Bush had more or less figured out is why groups will suddenly change behavior. And he came up with some things you can do to innovate faster and better once you understand that. And it wasn't at all known in the business world or even the private world or even by many historians who analyze World War II history. Most of them don't know at all about Bush's contribution. So I that really started me thinking about what did he do, how did he do it, why did he do it, what's the underlying different way of thinking about the behavior of groups and teams and companies that can unlock some new ideas about how to design teams and company better, not so much about culture, 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 which is the kind of stuff that I read for years and years as a CEO running a company, but more about structure and why it is that structure drives culture. So that was fascinating that to me. I loved the history of it. I loved the storytelling aspect of it. I loved the business implications of it. Friends and colleagues, I would give some talks on it, and they really just wanted to hear more. So I ended up turning it into a book. Well, congratulations on that. And let's talk about the title of the book. It's called Loon Shots. And in the context of you know what you were just describing, organizations that had a chance to embrace something new and rejected it. Let me just define a loon shot and then give you a couple of examples to speak to. So a loon shot in your language refers to an idea or a project that most leaders assume either isn't going to work or if it does, it's not going to make any money and they inherently challenge conventional wisdom. And as you write in the book, many companies throughout history have been profoundly disrupted or even ruined by innovations they themselves created and then rejected. For example, you cite Nokia, and in 2004, their engineers created a phone with a big color touchscreen display and a high-resolution camera, and they even promised an online app store. But the company's management shut it down, and of course, we all know, Apple introduced the iPhone three years later. You also write about Edwin Land, founder of Polaroid. And incredibly, he invented the digital camera, but couldn't see how it could make money. So he allowed other companies to take it on, and that inevitably brought down his business. So my question is really, is there like a flaw in us as human beings and human nature that influence us to resist change, to resist new ideas when they're presented to us? What's the leadership takeaway? And what can you teach us about curiosity and patience and even vision for new ideas? <laughs> All of that in 10 seconds, yeah, right? I know. Be concise, please. <laughs> I would start by separating out two things. One is individual behavior and one is group behavior. So there's a lot of stuff that's been written about on the individual behavior side. And some of that is pretty well known. I mean, we're resistant to change. We have all sorts of fallacies and cognitive biases and overconfidence and all that sort of stuff. There are a few things we can say there, but let me go to something that I think nobody's really talked about before and what's quite new in Loonshots, which has nothing to do with all of those individual behavior patterns or fallacies or so on about resistance to change and overconfidence. We'll come back to that stuff because it's not that it's unimportant, but the idea of something strange that happens in groups 
is totally different and separate from that. And what happens in groups is something that you can control. I write about is how the science of that, a new kind of science, borrowing the tools and techniques that we've developed over many years in physics and studying systems that change behavior, give managers and leaders a new set of tools that we haven't talked about before or even thought about before. It comes actually down to a, it's both a new field of science and a new field of economics. And I've talked with both scientists and economists about it. And there's actually a lot more interesting research we can do about it just purely on the science side. But to get to the sort of bottom line, it's this. When you put people into groups, why is it that the same people who individually might be excited about idea, a certain idea, whether it's the Nokia iPhone or a digital camera, when you put them together into groups, collectively they will reject that idea. And you see that in, let's take a biotech company, the kind of company I ran. You have 10 people who are excited about a drug project. You know, in a 10-person company, the same 10 people will pound the table and get excited and passionate and do whatever they can to champion that project. But you put the exact same 10 people in the exact same project inside Pfizer, and they will kill it. Why? It's the same people. So here's where... An analogy, you can understand the science by analogy with a glass of water. By Pfizer, you're really describing a large corporation, right? You're not really speaking about Pfizer. Any large corporation of, you know, difference between a 10-person organization and a 100,000-person organization. Right. But considering the same project made up of the same people. Because I do want to set aside this fallacy, the kind of stuff that I, you know, entrepreneurs often say to each other, well, we're the real risk takers and that's why... You know, we champion you know, these high-risk promising projects and they're super conservative inside those big companies. That turns out to be not the case. That's the kind of stuff that a lot of young entrepreneurs think. I was one of those guys and we go to beers with my friends when I was, you know, in my early 30s and starting a company. And I said, you know, those risk-averse guys at the large company, they can't do anything. And then as you grow up, you realize, wait a minute, not only do you work with them and have dinner with them and drinks with them and they're just like you, but as soon as you hire them and they go inside your company, boom, the suit comes off, the, the tie comes off, and they're just like you. They're pounding the table about some wild, crazy idea. So why does it? And the analogy you can think of there is with a glass of water. The molecules inside are exactly the same molecules, whether they're liquid or when you change the temperature and you lower the temperature, lower the temperature at 32 Fahrenheit, suddenly their behavior completely changes. They go from sloshing around to completely rigid. They go from where you can swirl your finger inside the glass to you can't even put your finger in. But those molecules are exactly the same. So why did they suddenly change behavior? So it's understanding the answer to that question. It's understanding the elements of structure, the elements of incentives in people in these two different situations. In the case of a glass of water, you have high temperature and low temperature and two different kinds of forces, balance between two different kinds of forces. And in the case of companies, you have small organizations and large organizations. Once you understand the forces at work, you can begin to manage them. You begin to understand that you can think of culture as the patterns of behavior that you see. Just like the molecules are sloshing around or totally rigid, or you have a political culture and you have an innovative culture. Those are patterns of behavior. Underlying that is structure. So in the case of a glass of water, you change temperature or other properties, and you shift those patterns of behavior completely. In the case of a company, you can change if you reward risk-taking and with equity, stake and outcome, you're going to get an innovative culture. If you reward rank, however, you're going to get a very political culture. And what happens is you, as companies grow is that every time you organize people into a group with a mission, whether that mission is to develop a new cancer drug or to make a new movie or to design a new product, as soon as you organize people into a group with a mission and a reward system tied to that mission, you've now created two competing forces. One of those forces is their stake and outcome. What's their equity? How well do they do personally if the project does well? And the other is the perks of rank. When you're a small company, let's say a 10-person company, the stake and outcome is enormous. That's why everybody in a 10-person company unites around that crazy drug project. If it works, everyone's a millionaire. And if it fails, everyone's unemployed. 
So you call this a phase transition, whether you're describing water moving to ice or you're talking about a startup moving to a full-fledged organization with perhaps shareholders and larger numbers of people. So where's the breaking point? Where does it tip? Right. That's exactly right. What happens is in a glass of water, there are two forces. There's entropy wants to make those molecules run around and Binding energy wants to lock them in place. And as you lower the temperature, the entropy gets weaker and the binding energy gets stronger until, boom, the system snaps right at 32 Fahrenheit. And in a company, you have stake and outcome, which can be very high when you're a tiny company. But when you're Pfizer, your stake in that project is very little. If you get, let's say, even if you get equity in Pfizer stock, you know, your little drug project can move that equity by not even a fraction of a percent. On the other hand, the perks of rank are irrelevant when you're a tiny little company, but they're huge at a large company. So if you're not careful what you're doing, and I get calls so many times now from CEOs who started you know, some very well-known companies, and they remember you know, when it was a five-person company and everybody united around the crazy idea, and they said that's exactly what happened inside our company. Now we're a 5,000-person company, globally known, everybody uses our product, but I could feel that, that people are more concerned about their career path. And that just didn't exist, you know, several years ago. And less willing to take risks. That's the inherent part of this, right? So they're not willing to stick their neck out on something that could backfire and then limit or end their career. Right. And so what happens is just because of structure, it's the same people, just like it's the same molecules in a glass. Mm-hmm. Just by having a larger organization and just by what you are now rewarding, you're rewarding rank rather than equity, all of a sudden you've created incentives for people to shoot down their neighbor's crazy ideas and champion their own. So what happens that has nothing to do with the individual behavior of overconfidence and all those sort of behavioral properties, which we can talk about a little bit more later, just by structure, you have created an incentive inside organizations to shoot down ideas. So you will shoot down good teams will kill great ideas. And I occasionally get pointed out that uh, there is people who have read and enjoyed Donnie Kahneman's uh, behavioral economics stuff. There's a very interesting parallel. For a long time, people assumed that you know individuals made these rational choices and they were troubled by the fact that you would see individuals making seemingly strange behavior choices. Why was it that people would make these irrational or predictably irrational choices? And so what Kahneman and Tversky and Thaler all explained is the science or the rational reasons why individuals make strange decisions, seemingly strange decisions. And so what I'm introducing here in some of that research that went into the book is the science behind why groups will make seemingly strange decisions, the completely rational reasons they will kill good ideas. Yours is actually a much cleaner, much more simplistic conclusion, though, right? It's the size of the organization and what you incent that creates the behavior. And so when I'm thinking about a small organization, use the 10 people example, so let's stay with that. And then this company grows and it becomes mature. You still have this operation to run. You still have to run whatever this company has evolved into. So that's a more of a traditional organization. It takes you away from the, the entrepreneurial startup mindset. So what is your solution then? These CEOs that you're talking to and say, hey, I remember the day when we had 10 people and now we're 5,000. How do I maneuver through this? How do we run the company and still remain innovative? So what is your conclusion? That's exactly what it's the same question, whether it's those CEOs who went from 10 to 5,000 or, you know, speaking with the U.S. military, the Navy, the Air Force, national security agencies, Microsoft, Google, Goldman Sachs, Fidelity, Viacom, all of these companies, it's the same. Call me in and they want to talk about the same thing. How do we balance the core and the new? Individually, everybody's excited. Individually, everybody gets we need to do both. Individually, everybody understands, listen, of course we have to execute on our core. Of course we need to deliver on time, on budget, on spec consistently. Otherwise, we have no customers. If you show up on your customer's door and you knock and you say, here's your toaster, and they said, well, I ordered a TV, you're going to be out of business pretty quick. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 
if a company comes up with a completely new product line or business line that catches you by surprise, challenges everything you thought you knew, you're also going to be dead. So for companies, this is a matter of P&L, but for the military, it's actually a matter of life and death. So I was on a nuclear submarine a few weeks ago, meeting with an admiral who's responsible for transforming the Navy, a half-million-person organization, to be ready for the 21st century. You know, we were sitting 20 yards from a nuclear engine while we were having these discussions. And imagine that you are hundreds of miles from shore, deep underwater. You don't want to start hearing clanking noise from your nuclear engine. That's your core. You need that at extremely low levels of risk and very high levels of quality. But at the same time, you don't want to be surprised by a new kind of torpedo from your enemy that you never saw coming. Either way, you're dead. So that's the key. When you get a little bit larger, when you're 10 people, everything is new. When you get larger, the key is how do you balance the core and the new? And that was the insight that I got from learning about what Vannevar Bush did, because at the start of World War II in 1938, 1939, the U.S. military, which was a giant franchise, one million, eventually two million people, was far behind this tiny little startup. So Nazi Germany had these things called U-boats, which looked ready to strangle the Atlantic, and did. It was shooting down ships faster than the Allies could build them. They had these planes that looked ready to bomb Western Europe into submission. And they did, within weeks. They just outclassed anything any of the Allied forces had. And you had these two German scientists who discovered something called nuclear fission, which is splitting the atom, which put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever created by man. So that you would say, how did a two million person organization turn around and innovate astonishingly fast? And eventually that's what Bush helped the military do. We eventually caught up and eventually exceeded Nazi Germany in the science and technology that ended up turning the course of the war. And you did that by balancing both. In other words, Bush understood that he couldn't change military culture. And he shouldn't. That tight discipline and execution and quality and lowering risk is exactly what you need if you are directing millions of soldiers in battle, tearing millions of tons of munitions and delivering it across four continents. But at the same time, that's minimizing risk. Those are the soldiers who are minimizing risk. At the same time, you're asking another group to maximize risk. The artists or creators or engineers or scientists, the innovators. So he separated the two groups is what you're saying? Right. You can't ask the same people to minimize risk on the one hand and maximize risk on the other hand. That's what mm -hmm. people who talk about, oh, the CEO must be the CIO, get so wrong in asking everybody to innovate. You can't ask a glass of water to be solid and liquid. You just get mush. You get neither a good solid nor a good liquid. I'm not so sure you made that exact point in the book, but you just made it there. And it's a really wonderful connection to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago. You're absolutely right. In terms of organizations, the challenge, though, is to not favor one over the other. I and mean, you tell this story in the book about Steve Jobs, about how he was so in favor of innovation and so focused on it that he actually treated the, the soldiers of the company, the people that were running the operations, ironically, the guy that would go on to be his future CEO, he called them, I think you said bozos. So how are you advising the CEOs to honor people for their individuality and the individual contributions they're making, whether they're soldiers or innovators. So when I talk to companies, give some of these talks, you know, just very briefly, at the high level, it's about why you want to create separate homes for your artists and your soldiers, because one is maximizing risk and one is minimizing risk, and they need totally different structures to do that. And that why it is that those two groups not only don't understand each other, but generally don't like each other. The group that's making the money rarely likes the group that's spending the money and vice versa. Just talk on that for a second. Why? What's our instinct? It often starts from different language, different value systems. And I, I should also preface this by saying that I don't believe people are born one type or born the other type. Mm -hmm. Just like a molecule isn't born a liquid or a solid. It depends where you put it. If you drop a molecule of water in a glass of liquid, it's going to slosh around. If you drop it on a cube of ice, it's going to lock. Same thing with whoever you assign to work on something crazy and new versus whoever you assign to work on on time, on budget, on spec. So those two groups are valuing different things and they need different metrics. Not only is that tension normal, you want that tension. 
if you don't have that tension, you have a far bigger problem. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're an artist or a creator or a designer or a biologist in the lab or an engineer, you want to try 10 crazy things, nine of which don't work. The one that does changes your industry or changes how people see the world or takes you into a whole new business. So you need to try all these sorts of crazy things. Now imagine you're a soldier and your job is to manufacture planes and you go to your general and say, here's my strategy. Let's put uh, 10 planes in the sky and see which nine fall down. We'll keep the one good one. Now he'd laugh you right out of the army. These groups have very different ways of seeing the world, very different things they value, very different things they're measured on, very different things they prize. One prizes originality, one prizes discipline and consistency and quality. Mm-hmm. So that's why the two groups not only don't understand each other, they don't generally like each other. The first thing you need to do is to create separate structures, separate homes for these two groups that are tailored to those totally opposite jobs. Maximizing risk on the one hand, minimizing risk on the other hand. But you also talk about bringing them together. Exactly. And so they can't be completely separate, right? So speak to that. Absolutely. So that's the fallacy. So that part in some sense is sort of easy. Once you kind of get it, that part is easy. The hard part and where almost all companies stumble is thinking that, well, I'm done. No. And that's where I usually get to when I'm talking to folks, kind of the second sort of simple mnemonic or simple thing to keep in mind. You know, the first one, I, 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 think, I think of things visually. I remember things visually better. So I think of the three I, basic core ideas as the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. And so the first one I was just telling you is the ice cube that you want to create separate homes for, you know, solid, liquid, or artist, soldier. The second one is be a gardener, not a Moses. And here's what I mean by that. The failure point in most innovation is never in the supply of new ideas. You put 10 people in a room with stacks of post-its for an hour and you can get 1,000 ideas. Some of them will be good. The failure point is almost always in the transfer to the field. Just having a concept or an early stage idea or even a prototype is a tiny little piece of the puzzle. It's like you're on your goal line, you've just moved the ball to your five-yard line. The rest of the 95 yards down the field is the artist working with the soldiers to create a product that you can deliver on time, on budget, on spec, consistently to customers. And that's very tricky. Like, you know, it took Johnny Ives' group to create a beautiful design for the iPad, but it took Tim Cook's group to get it down to $600 instead of $6,000 when it launched. Now, if it had been $6,000 when it launched, there would be no Apple. You need both, and both are equally hard challenges. So what it means for leaders, these groups won't understand each other and they will almost always reject each other's feedback and input and ideas. The failure point is almost always in that transfer, both directions. When do you get those baby stage ideas out from the nursery and into the field where the soldiers will do everything they can to resist it? And when do you get and how do you get the feedback back from the field and the customers into the lab? Because the products will never work well the first time. And if you don't get the feedback back in the other direction, which also is a very hard ask, because why should the soldiers take time out of their day? Let's say they're salespeople and paid on commission. If you want them to learn some new product, you know, that you think it might take three hours out of their day, but actually, because it's such a crazy product and such an idea, they have to listen to these crazy engineers and they're gobbledygook and they can't understand what they're talking about and it breaks the first 15 times. It takes three days out of their week. And they're measuring number of sales calls and progress in the sales funnel every 60 minutes. So every hour they're not making 15 calls is literally money out of their pocket that could be paid for tuition or mortgage. So of course they're not going to jump on spending their time not making sales calls and listening to some crazy engineer who thinks his product is some beautiful, wonderful new idea that's going to change the world, but actually it's full of all these flaws that he doesn't want to hear about. You say, of course, they don't, but where you're leading is that they actually do, right? Successful companies have figured out a way to tap into them and to do it in a way where they don't hate one another. They're actually collaborating and understand their roles. Is that what happens? Or So by uh, number two, by the garden hoe, I mean, what it takes is managers and leaders who focus on the transfer rather than the technology. In other words, they spend their energy problem-solving how do we make this 
happen? How do and when do we move these ideas out? How do we incentivize the soldiers to take time out of their day to try new ideas? How do we incentivize the soldiers to bring it back? And what systems and people and processes can we create that make that transfer work better? Are they collaborating on that? Or is it all the innovators that are hand delivering this then to the soldiers and saying, here, we figured it all out? Oh, no. And so when I get into the next level of detail, when I have, you know, more than, you know, usually I talk about, you know, I give some 30 or 40 minute overview of the basic ideas and stories. But then if there's time for the next level of detail, we get into sort of here are a handful of very specific tricks and techniques that a handful of companies have figured out to make that transfer work better. There's like five, six, seven specific, some of them are little, some of them are small things that actually make a big difference, but they're all about the transfer. Can you talk a little bit about some of the big impact ones? Obviously, we don't have as much time to go through them as detail. You know, quite a few of them are described in Loon Shots. You know, the idea of appointing bilingual specialists, why you need a chief incentive officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some of them I, are uh, things that I just talk about when I have more time to sit down with companies and leadership teams and a little hard to do in a 10-minute call or 20-minute call of what we're doing now. But the idea is you need to focus your energy on that transfer. And so many people think that being a great leader means be a Moses who's standing on top of the mountain, raising his or her staff, anointing the chosen project, the holy loon shot or the iPod or whatever. But that's not what those great leaders do. So you mentioned the Steve Jobs example. The great leaders do two things. And Steve Jobs was an example of the worst way to do it in his first time, first in at Apple. So as you said, when you know, after they developed the Apple II and it was a hit, it was a hit for maybe 24 months. It was one of the early personal computers, but so was the Commodore PET and so was the TRS-80. And then eventually the IBM PC wiped all of them off the you know face of the planet pretty much. So Apple really quickly needed something new and they struggled, you know, Jobs struggled to try to make the next version of the Apple, the Apple III and the Lisa and That didn't go very well, so he was sort of pushed off into a corner and given this project called the Macintosh Project. And he decided he really liked that. And so he got rid of the person who had started the project and took it over and announced that those were the true artists working on this new idea and everybody else was a bozo working on the franchise. So that's an example of exactly the wrong thing to do. And that gets to the third thing, which is the heart, which is loving your artists and soldiers equally. And so what he did, the exact opposite of that. He said, everybody who's a soldier, who, by the way, is bringing in 95% of the revenue of the company, everybody's a bozo. And we're the true artists. So people on the franchise side got plastic buttons with pictures of Bozo the Clown and red circles and a sash. We're not bozos. And the hostility was so great that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. And people on both sides started leaving. And then what happened? When the Macintosh launched, it was a flop. It was a great publicity, but it was too expensive, it was too slow, it was underpowered, it overheated, and so nobody was buying it. Meanwhile, so many good people had left on the franchise side that Apple was rapidly headed for bankruptcy and Jobs was justifiably asked to step down. Fast forward 12 years later, he brought in, he first promoted Johnny Ive, one of the great artist designers, and the second thing he did is he brought in a guy named Tim Cook, who in his previous role at Compaq was called the Attila the Hun of Inventory. So if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. And he led not by, oh, I'm a, this myth of I'm a Moses on the mountain with the idea, but he led the garden hoe was balancing the two, managing the touch and balance between those two groups. And he had switched in those 12 years. He learned the last thing, the heart, which is to love your artists and soldiers equally. And when he passed away, who was it that took over? Not the ultimate artist but the soldier, Tim Cook. So the three sort of high-level things create separate homes for these two groups that you're asking to do totally different things and understand that they won't like each other, won't understand each other, and you want that tension. You want to enhance that tension. You want one group taking as much risk as possible, the other group minimizing risk as much as possible. Think of your job as the mindset you want as a leader is manage the transfer, not the technology. Be a gardener, not a Moses. And the third thing is the heart, and that's the signaling. Everybody, if you're a leader or a manager, anyone who's been in this role knows that everybody's watching your face all the time to see what you're signaling. It's like I have a friend of mine who is at a, running a company that puts out a major magazine every month, and we were talking about some of this, and she was 
she got really animated. She was saying, look, this is exactly what happens inside my company. The leadership just goes on and on about whoever's squawking about the latest shiny, innovative new toy. And how does it make the rest of us feel who are busting our butts Mm -hmm. nights and weekends with the hard slog of putting out a magazine? And they don't talk about us at all. So the heart is signaling. You got to wear both hats, the artist hat and the soldier hat. You got to appreciate both the artists and soldiers and connect to them in the language that they appreciate. You know, with the soldiers, it's, you know, let's say you have finance people. Well, we were a publicly traded company. You know, people who are inside public companies know that you have to close your financial books within 15 days of end of month, end of quarter. That's a really tough job for your finance people. You want to appreciate that and see how many, you know, what was the error rate? What was the quality? How fast did it get done? You know, what was the consistency? How well did it get? And that's what they get excited about. And that's what you want to focus on. Those are the metrics. If you go to your creators or whether they're scientists or engineers and say, how many ideas did you have on Monday and how many ideas did you have 2.2 on Monday? Well, you had 3.3 on Tuesday, and but only 1.6 on Wednesday. We're falling a little low on the production of ideas. You know, it'll be ridiculous. What's your advice to an individual leader, Safi, within teams? So obviously many managers listening to this have teams of 10, 20, 30 people, maybe not necessarily 500 or 5,000. And yet you need to take care of business. You need to achieve your goals, whatever those are. But then you still want to innovate. You still want people thinking of better ways to do this. So how does the heart part of this work in a small team? It's exactly the same thing at a different scale. You have to have two hats. You know, I'm a solo entrepreneur as a you know, writer or speaker talking to companies or whatever, working my next projects. Or when we were a startup, you're five people, you're 10 people, even 20 people. You have to have both hats. You have to be able to take one hat off, put the other hat on if you're the manager. And with the people, if you're tiny, you can't separate the role by there's a building for people working on crazy ideas over in Boston, and there's a building for people who are manufacturing and developing and selling over in Toronto or whatever. But you can separate the roles by time. Mm -hmm. I was actually talking with somebody at uh, Disney the other day, and this is, for example, what they do with films, which is they have different words for it. I think they use the child mentality versus the adult mentality. You want to like make it very clear with your team, even if it's four people or eight people or 15 people, you want to make it very clear with your team, look, it's Monday. What we're going to do is we're going to take off the soldier hat, which is you know deadlines and timelines and budgets and quality. Take that completely off and put on this other hat, which is 180 degrees the opposite. We're going to spend, whether it's the afternoon or the day or a couple days, a quarter. We're going to spend this fixed time block with our artist hands, forgetting everything we knew about quality and risk. And we're just going to think of the craziest possible ideas. How would somebody kill our business? What would be the weirdest things that our customers might do that we're sure they would never do? What would be the strangest things that our vendors or suppliers might do? What are the craziest technology things that might appear that we are certain are impossible? And what might we do about those changes if they happened? And just take off all of that risk minimization, all that stuff that you have to wear day to day if you're running a business or a team in the real world where you can't be sitting around fantasizing about really crazy stuff all the time. It's a really cool exercise, but if you know that there is a group of innovators in a different building somewhere, does an individual manager even think that that's a necessary exercise? Of course. So tell me why. Because firstly, you want, you know, and actually Microsoft does this very well. Google sort of does this in a kind of different way. But firstly, there may be people working on something, but not your main project. Let's say you're in Google search. Okay, there is Google X in a different building, but you know they're building flying windmills mm-hmm. and driverless cars and that sort of stuff. They're not working about what might kill the search business six weeks from now. So you want to take whatever you're working on. And the key is that you make it a fixed block of time and the rules are clear in advance. We're going to take three hours or six hours or one day or whatever it is. And at the end of that, we're going to, have evaluated some crazy loon shots, some unexpected changes that challenge conventional wisdom and our own accepted beliefs about the way the world is, the crazier the better. And we're going to prioritize which of these are the most important, have the most actionable things, suggest some things we might do to turn that into a weapon. In other words, the reason you want to do this 
is you don't want to discover everything that you were sure that was true. You don't want to discover you're wrong when that surprise comes at you like a bullet to the head. That's too late. You're dead. You'd rather discover it internally. And if you discover something interesting internally, give people a little bit of time to run with the ball on some kind of wacky thing that you're sure will never work, but they come back to you with traction, now you can turn that around. You can turn that bullet around and use it in your competitor because maybe they haven't done as good a job as you have in carving that time out to have that crazy artist hat on and people thinking about what loon shots might come and kill them. So you want to carve it out and at the end of that period, pick a certain number that you're going to focus on and certain actionable steps that you can take for the rest of that week or for the rest of that month to test some of those hypotheses. I mean, it's a really energizing exercise anyway, isn't it? Just taking people out of their normal day and their normal controlled, more process-oriented thinking and then turning them loose and giving them a whole day to think about something very different. I mean, I just think that's a wonderful leadership exercise anyway. Yeah, it takes a certain kind of management, Mm -hmm. strength of character and discipline because you have to be able to be very clear right up front. When we are out of this zone, when we are out of this time period, when we are out of this box, our soldier head comes back on and all of us are going to be measured on on time, on budget, on spec. What are those numbers? But now I want you to take that off and do exactly the opposite. I want you to come up with ideas that we can test in the minimal viable quality, right? Everybody's got a fixed budget. So if you have $1,000 you could spend, you know, you'd rather try 10 little experiments at $100 than one bigger experiment at $1,000. You really need to change the mindset because I've been in exercises like this that wasn't set up well enough and people are so high on momentum in terms of resisting change and wanting to do it the same way and being very process oriented that you bring them into this kind of a discussion and they're the deal killer from, from hell, right? this isn't going to work. This is a bad idea. We don't need to think like this. It's what you were describing in terms of the kind of a leader who could pull this off as someone who really sees a much bigger picture than than even what they're responsible for operating in most of the time. It's about managing mindset, not tasks. It's about getting into your small team and say, let's talk about our mindset for a fixed period of time. And then I'm going to ask you to switch mindsets. Mm -hmm. You know, what you discover when you do this sort of thing is people love doing this. Mm -hmm. People want to get out of their box. It's very energizing. It's very liberating. Everybody's sitting on some stuff that's buried inside. Often they don't even know how much ideas are trapped in there that you can unlock if you help them achieve a slightly different mindset. And you de-risk it by saying, look, it's quarantined. We're only going to do this for six hours. You know, at the end of those six hours, we're all going to go back to the real world with our real hats. So don't worry about it. It's like the, what is it called? The whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or whatever that is. (laughs) Whatever happens in this six-hour window, whatever idea you want to say, it's okay. Just go for it. Let's talk about leadership mindset because you've sort of piqued this in me. And it reminds me very early in my career, I started working in the retail banking organization and my boss was the director of marketing and he had responsibility for everything, market research and advertising and product and had a very, very big world. But independent of all the people that he was directly managing, he was most responsible for the success of about 250 bank branches all up and down the state of California. And we would be in meetings and he would say, those branch pukes, they don't know what they're doing. And we give all these great things and they don't know what to do with them. And he was, you know, directly criticizing the very people that he was supposed to be influencing. And in your book, and you've been talking about this earlier, about this guy, Vannevar Bush, and during World War II, it was his genius that led to the first use of radar and tracking enemy ships and submarines. And he went on to be number two at MIT, and he created Raytheon. And as you describe him, you say that he cultivated this ability to embrace people who are unlike him, to embrace people. That's a really powerful world and not reject them because they're different. And so tell us a little bit more about him and how this behavior facilitated his great success and what individual managers can take from it. Sure. And it gets right to what you were talking about with the guy that you worked with. That's a disaster for an organization. And it comes back to that third rule, you know, the ice cube, the garden hoe and the heart. It's the heart, which is the signaling. 
if anything leaves your lips that signals favor for either side or the other, you love the artist and, you know, poo-poo the soldiers or vice versa, you're going to imbalance your ship and your ship will sink. It doesn't matter which direction you favor. You need them in balance. So, for example, Vannevar Bush, so many people between the two after World War One and before World War II and between the two wars understood that we were starting to slip in science and technology, especially by the 1930s. It became very clear from all the fleeing Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany. And they tried to talk to the military or political leaders and say, you know, listen, we got to invest more in the science and technology. But what their attitude was, they may not have said it out loud, but you could see it or read it between the lines. Well, I'm a Harvard professor or president of this university. And, you know, did you guys even graduate high school? So you should listen to what I have to say. What was their impact? Zero. Absolutely zero. That's why we were in the mess that we were in. When Bush came around, one of his great characteristics and traits was that he completely appreciated people who were unlike him. Mm-hmm. So he was an incredible innovator. He was a genius level inventor that invented, that's another story, all the very impressive things that he invented. But he was an incredible scientist and inventor and tinkerer. And yet he loved working with the military when he completely appreciated and understood what they were doing, what they were bringing to the table, why they were so necessary, why their skills were so important, and why the best of them were fantastic at their jobs and were incredibly valuable. How did he learn that? Is that just instinct? Is he just a brilliant guy? I think, that's a good question. How did he learn that? I think in some sense it's a self-awareness, and in some sense I think he intuitively understood organizations very well. And he intuitively understood that if he wanted to make something happen, and he was a patriot, and if we wanted to win that war, we would need both of those skills. You know, it's not very different than a coach who understands you have a first baseman with a certain set of skills that's totally different than a pitcher that's totally different than a catcher that's totally different than a a great runner who's also an outfielder. And you need all of those things. He just understood it and didn't allow the fact that he had a certain group of friends who were in sort of elite Ivy League territory to influence the fact that he appreciated that these other skill sets were enormously valuable. I mean, I think there's a real irony in that, though, because we like the way you just described this. You know, you just had the World Series and you see how the teams play together and work together and support one another, even though they're individually doing something different. But then you bring that to business and sales can't stand finance and marketing can't stand sales. You know, we've got all these kinds of unnecessary enemies. And that seems to be our worldview right now. You know, there's just all this tension. Well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, it's easy to assume that, you know, oh, it's unique. There are certain unique things today that are exacerbated because of this sort of bubble, bubble chamber effect of social media or news that just echoes stuff that people want to hear. We always had the problem as a species mm-hmm. that we like people who are like us and tend to not like people who are not like us. And it's the exception that gets past that. You know, I think you asked me why, and I don't, not sure I thought about it much before, but. Vannevar Bush came from a father who was a pastor and had a very open-minded and welcoming way of seeing the world. And I think that extended to his son, to Bush, that he saw presidents the same way that he saw janitors and talked to both pretty much the same. And that's, of course, what a pastor has to do. So he was taught that. I'm asking this not just to ask it. I'm asking it because as I was reading it, and we're going to talk about, I want to talk about synthesis in a second, but these two ideas of reaching out to people and feeling like people that are different from you, you can learn from them and you can get along with them and that that's ultimately going to benefit you is a really wonderful leadership idea. It's a really wonderful leadership insight. And so he learned that from a spiritual influence, obviously, his parents. But I already know the answer, but I'd like to hear you say it. Don't you think that this is a really great takeaway from his example in terms of leading people and leading organizations and how we ought to be thinking as managers? Absolutely. I don't think you can manage a team successfully if you don't understand that. Now, he, 
you know, he happened to have a pastor father. I grew up like that, and my father was an academic scientist. It was just his worldview that being an academic scientist was one job. You're a pitcher or you're a catcher, and there are other jobs, and they're not really better or worse. They're just different jobs. And I've always had the same view. I had certain things I was good at and other things I wasn't good at, and I might have been good at mathematics or science or other stuff, and other people were better at basketball than me, and neither was better or worse. They were just different. So I admired people for their character and not so much for their choice of specialization people who worked hard, people who committed to what they were doing, people who felt they had a higher purpose, people who treated others well. And I, I think that mindset can be encouraged and that mindset can be discouraged. And I think for a leader, it's that balance is essential and it's a very common trap. Like the, you know, the Steve Jobs trap was that he saw himself when he was a young guy as this great, great artist and product designer. And uh, that was a disaster. And then he didn't appreciate and understand all the other people who were working at his company. And that nearly killed his company. But he was an example of someone who learned the hard way because he went through many, many failures where he kept doing the same behavior until he sort of turned around and figured it out and got it right the second time. Something that I really wanted to make sure I got to was this idea of synthesizing. You talked about Steve Jobs and even Isaac Newton as being people who could sort of take ideas from a lot of different realms. Leonardo da Vinci is a great example of that. They tap into multiple disciplines and then leverage it all to create something that really the world's never seen before. So can you sort of quickly speak to that in terms of leadership and how leaders need to be broader minded than just reading another leadership book or just reading another book on business and how they might broaden themselves in ways that they might not realize could benefit them in tremendous ways. Yeah, it comes to understanding whether you're left-handed or right-handed and teaching yourself to be ambidextrous. And here's what I mean by that. So there's one version of that we've already talked about, the artist soldiers. If you grow up as a soldier, and by the way, some of the most interesting folks on the military side that I've been talking to in the last year or so are ones who, of course, grew up in the soldier mindset and the soldier mentality, but treat scientists as complete equals and are just as supportive of scientists as they are of soldiers and understand how to talk to scientists about things that scientists care about, which is, let's say, originality and research and where they're idea is headed while turning around and talking to soldiers about the things that soldiers care about, which is discipline and execution. So on the one hand, a very important skill to learn is how to be ambidextrous with that artist-soldier divide. So how to be able to do both. And that matters if you're running mm -hmm. a thousand-person group, a hundred-person group, a 10-person group, or just you. If it's just you and all you're doing is spitting out new ideas, whether you're some kind of biologist or you're an engineer or you're a writer, but not actually producing an end product on a fixed schedule with a fixed budget, then you're going to be nowhere. And vice versa, if you're very good at discipline and execution and spelling and timelines, but can't take the break to come up with something really creative, you'll be nowhere. So at every scale, on the one hand, you want to be ambidextrous on that artist-soldier divide. But there's another kind of divide, which is you want to be ambidextrous on the what I call S-type versus P-type, which is a different kind of divide if you're running a business or even if you're a scientist or you're an engineer. So the ideas that get a lot of press are new kind of products. You mentioned the digital camera, you know, there was the transistor, there was the jet engine, a telephone. Those are all new personal computers. Those are all new kinds of products that began as loon shots. Those were sort of what I call P-type or product type loon shots that people said there's no way that technology could ever work. And then it turns out, yes, it can. But there's an equally important type of loon shot, which is a change in strategy that everybody says is crazy. So let's take this a 32-year-old young guy who likes selling stuff, and so he wants to open a store and where the biggest foot traffic is, you know, a big city, in his case, St. Louis. And his wife says, oh, I don't really like big cities. I'm so happy to support your dreams, but only if we live in a town with less than 10,000 people. So he said, uh, okay, well, I'll find this little town. Well, I also like quail hunting, and there's this little region in the country where there are four states meet in a point, and I can do quail hunting all year round. There's a town there called Bentonville, Arkansas, so let me put my store there. It's in the middle of nowhere. And everybody said, well, you, you want to sell retail. There's no foot traffic. There's no feet. It's just trees. 
He said, well, we'll see. And boom, that young guy was, of course, Sam Walton. Mm -hmm. And that store became Walmart, which completely transformed the industry. But there was no new technology. It was a change in strategy. So most people grow up, a lot of people, especially in Silicon Valley, have this sort of P-type mindset, product, product, mm -hmm. product, product. product. And I, in, the, in the book, I talk about Pan Am and how Juan Tripp built this incredible airline, this incredible brand all on product and on bigger, faster engines, bigger, faster planes. And he missed these subtle changes in strategy like hub and spoke, frequent flyers, data management, which when deregulation came around, killed Pan Am and essentially every other airline except a guy named Bob Crandall, who was very good at this other kind of loon shots, these S-type loon shots, strategies, small shifts in strategies, hub and spoke, rapid turnaround times, you know, super saver fares, none of which involved any new technologies or new products or different kinds of planes. But nevertheless, innovation. Exactly. So the lesson, but it's not the classic kind of, not the kind of stuff you see on the cover of magazines and superficial mm -hmm. sound bites where there's some Sexy employee stuff. holding mm -hmm. up a new product like a Olympic runner holding up a torch or something. It's not those things you'll see on cover magazines. It's, you know, when, when they invented, you know, when they gave away their reservation system, when American Airlines gave away, and Bob Crandall gave away their reservation system that they use in house to every travel agent in the country. That wasn't exactly a, you know, glamorous cover story in Time magazine. It's a reservation system. Who cared? But that made a difference because every travel agent started using American Airlines. They didn't invent any new technology. They just came up with a weird idea. Let's give away what we're using in-house to everybody for free. So the moral of that story is a leadership skill you want to develop is understand where are you left-handed, where are you right-handed, and how can you become ambidextrous. If you are a person who's spending all this time on the artist and encouraging your artists, what do you have to do to back off a little bit and encourage equally the soldiers? And talk to them in language that gets them fired up about what they're doing just as much as you talk to the artists about what they're doing. If you are a product person, you're just focused on the latest, fastest, best gadget, how do you talk about and get equally excited and put just as much energy in, well, how are we reaching our customers? Who might we partner with? What's a crazy strategy that involves no new technologies that's really actually cheap and easy that we haven't thought of yet? that our competitors might think of and spend just as much time and energy on stuff that a strategy that might not cost anything, that might not involve any new technology, but just a, a subtle shift in customers or partners or vendors or pricing. Doing something better. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I was on stage at the uh, Masonic Temple in San Francisco yeah. a few weeks ago. It was a couple mm -hmm. thousand people and I was kind of doing this opening keynote to all these product leaders in Silicon Valley. And then right after me, you know, a couple of talks later, there were these two guys from Burger King. And they talked about, you know, they don't have as much money or market share as McDonald's, but they came up with this idea. They said, well, we have this app. How could we get people to use our app? The technology is already built. Well, there's already a GPS. What about if we came up with a crazy idea that whenever you open your app, your Burger King app on your phone, and you're geolocated, you are within whatever the number was, 300 feet of a McDonald's. You will get a coupon to buy a Whopper for a penny. That's just a weird idea. There's no new technology there. It was a simple thing to code. What happened was this like epidemic of people going to McDonald's, opening up their Burger King app, getting a Whopper for a penny, and then going up to people at the McDonald's saying, hey, where do I get a Whopper? And then everybody at McDonald's going in all these videos that went viral of people at McDonald's going, uh, we don't sell Whoppers here. <laughs> You're going to have to go, you know, a mile down the street. To the, it's just like over and over and over. There was this epidemic and like their sales went up, you know, some astronomical number like 10x or whatever and, and continued. So that's an example of no new products, just a subtle shifted strategy to geolocate. That's crazy. Why would you offer a discount when you're near a competitor? Brilliant. See what happened. Well, listen, we need to end it, unfortunately. I kind of want to underscore the fact that as I was reading your book, I realized that you're a brilliant writer. There's just so much insight in this book. We have something we call the heartbeat round, and this will probably be the first time we've never gone through it because the discussion I found was just much more valuable. I think that your book is really remarkable and has so much great insight, and I, I hope you don't mind me moving all these different places in the course of an hour to tap as as much of it as I possibly could. No, it was a lot of fun. I feel like we could keep going for another couple hours. 
<laughs> I would love that. We'll have to have you back. But on behalf of my audience, Safi, this has just been a wonderful conversation. And thank you for all of your brilliant insights. Thanks. Enjoyed being on your show. Thank you so much. Before we close, I want to mention this is our final episode of the season. And with your support, we intend to be back in the new year with more wonderful guests. In the meantime, we hope you'll make time to listen to any of the 37 other episodes of the Lead from the Heart podcast you may have missed, some incredibly great guests. And as a holiday gift to us, please introduce us to your friends and colleagues. We'd be so very grateful. I want to thank my wonderful team of supporters throughout this entire year, Susan DeRoche, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, and our podcast producer, Mr. Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you very, very much for listening. Mm-hmm.